because I got up this morning and I, good thing I looked at my notes because I printed off what we're going to be doing in six weeks. <laughs> so I went to look at it and I'm like, what is this? And the crazy thing is, I had printed it off twice yesterday because the first time I printed it off, I went, oh, that's the wrong one. So then I went to print off today's notes and I apparently printed off the same one again and didn't discover it this morning. So you were almost wrong this morning. So fortunately we caught that mistake. So I guess one of the downsides of working five or six weeks ahead. So turn to Acts chapter 17. So we mentioned, and Dustin's already alluded to this this morning, that last week we looked at uh, Paul and his time in Thessalonica and Berea, and I mentioned that we were going to look over two weeks how Paul was a master at communicating the gospel, not just because he understood the material, but because he understood his audiences, and that's a key component when it comes to being able to communicate. If you don't speak the language, for instance, of the people you're trying to communicate to, they won't understand you, and it's the same thing when it comes to understanding how to properly communicate with somebody, if you can understand how they think and what's important to them and what values they have and other things, um, certainly it helps making communicating the gospel easier. And so Paul was a master at that. We see that in his epistles. You know, Each one of his epistles has a flavor to it, if you will. He, the way he writes to the Corinthians is slightly different than the way that he wrote to the Galatians or the way that he wrote to the Ephesians. And we see that in the sermons in the book of Acts as well, how they always seem to know their audience, and Paul was one of them. So when we looked at this last week when we started we saw that there were two primary audiences. Last week's audience was primarily a religious audience, but they were religious in the sense that they understood who Yahweh was because they were affiliated with Jews. You had the the Jews in the synagogue, but then you also had the God-fearing Greeks, which were those who were practicing Jews, in essence, without being Jews, meaning they worshipped Yahweh, they understood Hebrew theology and the Hebrew scriptures, and so that was Paul's primary audience last week. They would have been familiar with the Old Testament scriptures. Um, They would have understood the primary concepts of Judaism. They would have known God as Yahweh, his personal name given to the Jews. Um, And we saw how that kind of played out. The first group that we saw last week were the people in Thessalonica, and they didn't respond too well to Paul, but you remember then when he moved on to Berea, they ultimately were really engaged with Paul, and there was a very different response from them. We were told that they were much more noble, meaning open-minded, willing to listen and to study and to engage in the scriptures than what the Jews were at Thessalonica. But we saw the impact that Paul had. We also saw as we looked at Paul's message to them that he focused primarily on the fulfillment of the prophecies related to Christ being Messiah. Because that's what the Jews were looking for. And so Paul focused on that. He used the scriptures very heavily. In fact, it might be a a good way to describe it as it was a Bible study of sorts. He opened the scriptures to them and he worked through the scriptures with them and he provided reason from the scriptures and from the evidence uh, of Christ's life to prove that Jesus Christ was the Messiah to the Jews. Today he's going to basically address a whole different audience. There are some Jews and God-fearing Greeks a part, a part of it, but that's not the bulk of them. It's a much wider, a much more diverse group of people that he, that he talks to today. And they were steeped primarily in Greek mythology and philosophy. So as we're going to see, he takes a slightly different approach with dealing with them, but he does not compromise the message of the gospel. There is a, uh, there's a trend, if you will, that um, we have to 
maybe not lead with the word or we have to um, sort of change the gospel message or whatnot to address people today. And um, I refer to that as compromising the gospel. And there are some movements within Christianity that um, have a tendency, I think, to sacrifice the gospel, thinking that they can lead people to Christ without actually really getting into certain concepts like sin and judgment and other things. And so they compromise that because they're offensive. And um, the fancy term, if you want, is contextualizing. They'll contextualize the gospel. And that can, you know, in some respects, we have to contextualize, meaning make it appropriate to the context we're dealing with. But that's not what these people typically mean. In fact, um, part of what um, made me think about this was a number of years ago when... um, when a number of folks, including some within the Grace Brethren Fellowship and, and other denominations, who were beginning to say we need to have a better outreach to Muslims and were saying things like, well, we can use the Muslim scriptures to lead Muslims to Christ. We don't have to use the Bible. Because it talks about Isha, which is another name for Jesus. And um, there's something seriously wrong with that approach. Because Isha is not Jesus. And as part of that, claims were being made that Muslims could come to Christ and still be good Muslims and still worship as Muslims and still worship at the mosques and they would not have to give up any of their Islam beliefs or their Islam practices. They could still be Muslims, could still call themselves Muslims. That's contextualizing the gospel in in the wrong way. And so um, that's not what Paul did. And this passage we're going to look at today is a passage those folks would often use to say, see, Paul did it. We're just doing what Paul did. Well, I'm hoping to show you that that's not what Paul did today. What Paul did was he simply understood the way to communicate to this particular audience. But he didn't compromise anything. Took a slightly different approach. And we're going to see that today. So the first thing I want to actually see, we're going to be in Acts chapter 17. We're starting in verse 16 is that Paul, when he came to Athens, he was actually provoked in his spirit because of what he saw around him. So as he looked at the, at the culture around him, it moved him to share the gospel. So his, his sharing of the gospel with these folks was, was motivated by what he saw in them. He was provoked. And so look at um, chapter 17, verse 16. We see that right out of the gate. It says, Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him as he was observing the city full of idols. So Paul is now on his second missionary journey. journey. Um, he's waiting at Athens. He's waiting primarily for Timothy and Silas to come. He left them at Berea. Remember, he had left them at Berea. He'd left there. He came to Athens. So he's now kind of by himself. And there he is in the city of Athens. Now you notice it says in verse 1 there that he was being provoked within him. It's his spirit was being provoked within him. That word literally means to be, um, sort of to make something sharp, to poke at something. There was something just eating away at Paul in his spirit. It's used in a metaphorical sense here to mean to agitate, to disturb, to stir up, to make one upset. So as Paul is looking around Athens, his heart aches. He aches in his spirit at what he sees. There was something there that disturbed him greatly. Now the tense that Luke uses here is one that implies something that was ongoing. But not only that, kind of the idea that the longer Paul was there and looked around, the more provoked he became, the more disturbed he became. It's something he couldn't get out of his mind. And so as he's looking around this city, we're told that what was provoking him was that he was observing a city full of idols. Now you all know what idols are. They're little statues 
of gods. Now, Athens was a pagan Greco-Roman city. It was completely immersed in polytheism, which means many gods. You remember how many of you studied maybe Greek mythology? I actually studied it when I was in high school and in college. I'm fascinated by it. Um, the gods were more like men, but um, fascinating. Well, that's what we find here in Athens, all of the Greek gods, Zeus and Apollos and all the others. But they were also steeped in something that we refer to as deism, which means that gods really are not all that interested in the affairs of men. So gods, the gods were very, very distant. They kind of did their own thing, you know? And so they were, they were steeped in this polytheism and in this deism. Now, Athens at this time was sort of well past its prime and its political influence, but it was still sort of the educational and philosophical and religious center of ancient Greek and Roman world at this time. And so as Paul comes to this city, what he sees are these idols all over the place, and he recognizes it's about their culture. Now, one ancient writer claims that there were over 30,000 of these idols in Athens. In fact, he commented in one of his writings that it was easier to find a god in Athens than a man, because the idols outnumbered the men. I don't know that that's necessarily true as a form of hyperbole. But that's what Paul saw as he walked in. And that's in addition to the dozens of temples that were actually in Athens. This was a city that you could walk into and it just bled religion, if you will. Statues and temples all over the place. And as Paul walks into this city and he's looking around, he sees that. And these are all false gods. All completely false. And I don't know any of you that have maybe ever had a conversation with somebody who is steeped in mysticism or other things or weird religious beliefs. And your heart just aches for that because you know they're lost. I've got a cousin who's steeped, steeped in mysticism and she does it as a business. And I've read through her website a couple of different times and my heart just bleeds and aches because she is so lost. So lost in the things that she promotes and she, she teaches. And that's what was happening here as Paul looked around this city. Highly religious, but very, very wrong. And so it agitated Paul in his spirit. And not that he was irritated and angry. He was bothered by the fact that these people were lost. And he could clearly see it in the things that he saw. So what does it do? Well, we're told here that it provokes Paul to share the gospel basically with anybody who would listen. Look at uh, verse 17. It says, so, and we, we can't ignore that word so, it's an easy word to look over, but it tells us why Paul did what he did. He was provoked, he was motivated, moved by his compassion for these people as they were worshiping these false gods. So, because of that, it moved him, it says, that he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present. So, once again, we find Paul going to the synagogue, but we also see that he's doing it in the marketplace. Now, we don't know if he set up shop here in the marketplace like he's done before, but we know that he's in the marketplace, probably because that's where people gathered. And so Luke writes that he spent his days reasoning there, he says, with anybody who would listen. So the Jews, the God-fearing Greeks, and then the others in the marketplace who were steeped in this mysticism, these multi-gods, the deism and the polytheism. Now we've seen this word reasoning before. It basically means to argue for one's ideas. It's a word that Luke also often couples with what Paul does. 
Paul was, was always trying to reason with people. He was always trying to convince them of what he was sharing. He wasn't just satisfied with saying, well, here's what I believe. <laughs> no, it was, this is what I believe and it's true and I'm trying to convince you that it's true as well. And that's something in our world today that's almost off limits, isn't it? Well, what's true for you? Your truth. You know, it's, no, no, it's truth. No, 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 it's your truth. I have my truth. It's your truth. Now, in some respects, we're still free to share our truth today, but it's getting more difficult because now when our truth goes against your truth, somehow I shouldn't be able to share my truth. So it's becoming even to the point now today where we're not supposed to share our truth anymore. It's okay for them to share their truth. But God forbid we share our truth, right? So this word that Luke uses here that he was reasoning wasn't just Paul sharing his truth. He was sharing the truth and trying to convince others. And so he did that, it says, on a daily basis, not only at the synagogue, he was probably there on the Sabbath, and then the rest of the week he spent in the marketplace where people would gather. Now we know that that's a pattern that Paul had where he always went to the most a strategic place. He chose the most strategic cities. He chose a strategic place here because that's where people were at. And so that's what we're told here. We're told that he was provoked enough to now share the gospel with anybody who would listen and he spent his days doing that. Now there are three particular groups of people that are actually mentioned in our passage today. The first group mentioned were the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles. Those would have been the people that were in the synagogues. They were familiar with Judaism. They were familiar with the law. They were religious people. I might say that that would be very similar to, um, say, the Catholics and the Lutherans and, and others. They're very religious people. So we could go talk with any of them, and they would understand us talking about Jesus and talking about the Lord, right? And so it might be very similar there. So that's who these people were, very religious, but almost in line You'd say they're right on the cusp. When I was Catholic, I didn't have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. I was right on the cusp. But when Bob shared the gospel with me, a lot of the concepts made sense. He just had to help me understand properly what I was missing. And that's what we're dealing with here. So one group were these God-fearing Gentiles and the Jews. The second group was anybody in the marketplace. That would have been primarily the Greeks and the Romans who were steeped in this Greco-Roman mythology and Philosophy. They were also religious, but in a very different way. So that might be in our world today, you might say, some of those that believe in non-Christian religions, mysticism or other forms of religious belief. Now, the third group was a group of philosophers, and this is very specific. These are some Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. They were the educated ones, but they were steeped specifically in, in Greek philosophy let me tell you a little bit about them because it will help us understand what Paul does today. And this actually is the largest of the group. This is the group that invites Paul to come to the Areopagus today, moves him from the synagogue, moves him from the marketplace, and specifically puts him into a large stadium with a large group of these philosophers. Now the Epicureans, they believed in the existence of the Greek gods, but they also believed that they were so far removed from the affairs of men that they didn't even interfere, they didn't interact with humanity at all. In fact, they almost didn't even know mankind existed. It was almost like these gods are stupid because they don't even know that men exist. There was no way to appease the gods. They don't know you exist. How can you appease them, right? 
They didn't care about your life. And therefore, there certainly would not be any form of judgment after death. In fact, they didn't even believe in an afterlife because the soul was so connected to the body that when the body died, so did the soul. The highest goal a person could could basically pursue was this earthly peace or this absence of mental, emotional, or physical distress of any kind. In other words, just enjoy this life. That's the best you can do. And certainly the gods, we believe in them, but they're not going to help, and they don't really care about us, so it doesn't matter what they think. We can't appease them anyway. There's nothing for us to pursue outside this life. So their motto was, nothing to fear in God, nothing to fear in death. Good pleasure can be attained. Evil or pain can simply be endured. That was their philosophy of life. But they were religious. That was their religion. I know people that are like this. That say they're religious, they have faith, but it's not at all what we would consider to be religious or faith. But they believe that the most important thing is enjoying life today, that when they die there's nothing more, so they just simply need to attain a good life here and now today. Now the other group of philosophers were called Stoics, the Stoics were pantheists, meaning they didn't, they didn't believe in the personal God or gods, but that the universe itself was sort of God, that God existed in all things. The difference between them and the Epicureans, the Epicureans believed in Zeus and other gods. The Stoics were much more, God is the universe. He's a, a force in nature. He might even be nature itself. You find God in the trees and in the shrubs and in the, you know, the squirrels running around in the backyard. They emphasized rationalism and logic and promoted aligning oneself with the natural laws of the cosmos. In other words, if you aligned yourself with the natural laws, the laws of the universe, the things you saw out in nature, then you were good. Their motto was simply, live according to nature. Whatever nature dictated, that's how you lived your life. So these are the two primary groups of philosophers that Paul was going to encounter today. And his message is primarily targeted and shaped to communicate to these two groups of people. He's not ignoring the people in the synagogues. We do know that he talked with them. But again, he's been invited from the synagogue and the marketplace into an arena now, a large stadium, the Areopagus, where he'll primarily talk to these two groups of philosophers. Now, Paul's message didn't garner a whole lot of respect from the philosophers when he was teaching in the synagogues. They were at the synagogues and they were in the marketplace. And they were interacting with him there, but they wanted to invite him to hear him more specifically. So look at verse 18. It says, And also some of the Epicureans and the Stoic philosophers were conversing with him, meaning they were talking to him in the marketplace most likely. They may have been even at the synagogue. But they were talking with him. They were probably arguing with him. And some were saying, What would this idle babbler wish to say? Others, He seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Now notice here, he didn't garner a whole lot of respect among these people. And there's a number of reasons for that. But they refer to him as an idle babbler. Now, you may have a little note in your Bibles. You may, you may not, but sometimes your Bibles will put the little letters next to it, and you move over and it'll tell you what the literal translation of that is. But what they actually called him was a seed picker. You little seed picker? Well, that doesn't make sense to us in English, especially us that don't farm. 
So idle babbler maybe makes sense to us, but a seed picker was somebody who simply regurgitated bits of knowledge that they had picked up from others like scraps of food on the ground. In other words, they're saying, Paul, you're just regurgitating what you've heard other people say. You're just a little scavenger. You don't even understand what you're picking up and regurgitating. You're, just picking, you're a seed picker. You're just picking up their scraps that they sort of left along the ground. So it implies that Paul is just regurgitating what others have talked about and that he does not even understand those things himself. It's a derogatory thing. It's looking down their noses at him because he didn't have the letters after his name. It says others were actually, however, intrigued. It says they were saying, hmm, he's talking about these strange deities. Meaning, we don't really know who this Jesus fellow is. It was sort of new to them. And primarily because he was talking about Jesus, it says, in the resurrection. And so while some were sort of mocking him, calling him a seed picker, others were saying, well, hmm, we're a little bit interested here. We don't know what he's talking about. We're willing to listen. So what do they do? Well, they decide to invite him into their arena where they could hear from him more specifically. Look at verse 19. And they, uh, they took him and they brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know more or may we know what this new teaching is which you are proclaiming? For you are bringing some strange things to our ears. So we want to know what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. They love to hear the new stuff. This tells us that these are people that are interested in talking and listening. They always want to know what the newest fad is when it comes to spiritual or mystological things or religious things. You know, we may also know people like this, that they just love discussing religion, hearing all the new stuff. You know, they're open to it all. And that's kind of the way these people were. And so they invite Paul, we're told here, to come to the Areopagus to hear more. Now, the Areopagus was this rocky, hilly area in Athens. It's what referred to as Mars Hill. You'll often hear this sermon that Paul's going to go through is this sermon at Mars Hill. In fact, I think David, did David Rance ever share pictures with you guys? I think when he was over at Athens, he said he was looking over that. He could see where Mars Hill was. It's where the Supreme Tribunal met their Council of the Areopagus, it was called. That's where they would address things like civil, religious, and legal matters. And so in some respects, it's like a courthouse. But it was a large open area. There's no indication here that Paul was arrested or dragged over here. This was an actual invitation. They were willing to engage him, and so they invited him along to come before this council, most likely, which was made up of a lot of these Stoic philosophers and Epicurean philosophers. It would have been a large number of city leaders. This was a pretty big deal. It doesn't tell us how many people were there, but this would have been a pretty big deal. I would imagine it was fairly well packed. And so Paul is given a platform now to share with these people, and he takes advantage of it. Remember, he's willing to talk to pretty much anybody that was willing to listen. So what's our takeaway when we first look at this as we sort of set this up before we get into his message? Well, I think we would probably take this away from it, that... Paul was provoked by what he saw, and that's what led him to do what he's about to do. I think we can't overlook that. I wonder sometimes if we get provoked enough when we look at our culture. We certainly get angry about things. We get up in arms about things like abortion, about the LGBTFC. I don't have enough room on my paper. 
we get irritated about those things. We get nuts about CRT and about the election and COVID and cancel culture. I want me to go on and on. We get irritated and agitated. And rightly so in the sense that those are all things that offend the Lord, right? We know that. But sometimes I wonder if we get more irritated or more angry than we get provoked. There's a difference. Being provoked means it hurts our heart and our spirit to see these things because we know that what it does is it it shows us that this world is lost. And it ought to stir up within us emotions of compassion and empathy and in some respects fear for these people. But instead we get angry and upset and we fight battles against those things but probably not enough dealing with what's behind those things. You know, we hear all the stuff in the news lately about um, what's happening at these, these parent-teacher meetings. And in many respects, I look at that and I think, finally, what took parents so long to stand up and to say, what, this is being taught in our schools? And they're not all Christians, folks. And so there's an element of finally, but... What's heartbreaking to some respect is, but this stuff's been going on for years. And it wasn't just CRT. It's kids being taught how to put, I won't go to, you know what I'm getting at, but the sexual education stuff and all, you got that and you've got history being manipulated and tortured and mistaught. And there's been all kinds of stuff going on for years within public schools. And most parents have just kept their mouths shut. Okay, But finally, somebody's now standing up, right? So you look at that and you go, that's a good thing. But and you think that's the focus. I've heard more Christians complain about CRT being taught and about systemic racism and all those things that I have heard them say, wow, these people are lost. What they're missing is the gospel. And actually get provoked in their spirit rather than angry. And what we're talking about here is Paul was provoked by what he saw because he understood that the issue wasn't what he saw, but what was behind what he saw. That it represented the fact that these people were lost. At some point, and we're going to find this a little bit later, they'd face the judgment of God without any hope. Because all these idols... 30,000 odd idols and all these temples did not offer them any hope when it came to God judging them ultimately. So the first takeaway for us, I think, is that we ought to be more provoked than angry, more provoked than irritated. And if anything, as we look at what's going on around us, we should be moved to think these people are lost. I think sometimes we care more about our constitutional rights than we do about the fact that the rights are being taken away by those who are going to hell. What should bother us more? I don't want to lose our rights, our constitutional rights. I believe they're owed to us. But am I more upset about that than I am about the fact that the reason we're losing those things are because of what people believe and they're going to hell because of it. And so Paul was provoked. And it led to him sharing the gospel, which ought to be what it does to the church. 
We ought to be looking around right now, seeing what's happening in our nation. If anything, it ought to be motivating us to share the gospel. Not just complaining about the election, or not just complaining about masks, or not just complaining about mandates. I'm not saying those things are unimportant, but if anything, what ought to be really at our heart is that it's time for us to step up and start sharing the gospel as a church again. Not that we don't, but I think we're missing the mark in a lot of respects. I remember when the whole moral majority thing started and the whole religious right thing started. And I wondered at that time if it would take our focus off the gospel and instead put it on politics and changing culture and society. And to be real honest, much of the church's focus for the last 30 years has been on changing culture and society. It hasn't been about changing hearts and minds, leading people to Christ. Paul was more interested in what was happening with these people. The idols that he saw around the city were what provoked him to think these people need the gospel. There's nothing in this passage today that indicates that Paul was trying to change Athens. If Athens would change, it would be because people's hearts were changed when it came to the gospel. Paul was more interested in seeing them know Christ. And so that's what he does. He sets out to do that. And so as a result of that, Paul now tailors his message to them so that he can best reach them in a way that they might understand, in a way that might move them to accept Christ. So we saw that Paul spoke to the Jews in a certain way. He primarily focused on Jesus as Messiah. He used the scriptures tremendously, had them open it up in front of him, because the way that it's described when he's at Thessalonica and Berea is that he was doing just that. He was opening the word right there in front of them, inviting them to come in and to analyze and to understand it. Now, the Greek philosophers wouldn't have been doing that. But that doesn't mean Paul avoided the scriptures. In fact, he spends time summarizing the scriptures. So let's see what he did here. The first thing he did was he took advantage of the way that they spoke. These philosophers and these Stoics, these Epicureans, had a particular way of talking when they would stand in front of a large group of people, which is what Paul is now going to do. We talked about that a few weeks ago where there's a form of Greek rhetoric that Paul actually followed. He does that here as well. I'm not going to go into great detail. I'll just run through it so that we understand it. But he actually communicates in a way that he knows would... um, set himself up as as educated and understanding. He took advantage of the way that they talked to talk to them. In other words, he didn't just ignore what was important to them. It had to do with the way that he shaped his message. And so he starts with a form of Greek rhetoric here that was important to them. Look at verse 22. It says, Now Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, we talked about this a few weeks ago, that was something referred to as the introduction or the exordium. It's where you addressed your audience by name. And so he says, Men of Athens, and in fact he probably raised his hand up in the air because that was also important to them, was hand motions. And so Paul probably raised his hand up in the air. We saw that the last time Paul did this. It even said he raised his hand. Maybe he did or didn't here, but it's pretty much important. They would stand up. You've even seen the pictures, the statues, where the men kind of are like this, Right? That's exactly what was important to them. And so Paul stood up before them. He introduces himself to this audience and he refers to them as men of Athens. He then lays the foundation, what was called the narratio. Look at verse, uh, the second half of verse 22. He says, I observe that you are a very religious in all respects, for while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar to a, with an inscription to an unknown God. That is referred to as what's called the foundation or the narratio. It's where he basically 
call something to mind that's of interest to them. He says, huh, I notice you're a very religious people. Right away they would think, yes, we are. It helps them know that he understands who they are, and it now piques their interest. From there he moves on to what's called the propitio, or the proposition. Look at verse 23, the very end of it. It says, therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. We've all heard this. If, we, if, if you've ever had, I, I've mentioned it to you a number of times, but if you've ever had a speech class, it says, tell them what you're going to tell them, then tell them, then tell them what you told them. Well, Paul here is saying, here's what I'm going to do for you today. I am going to declare to you what you worship in ignorance. There's this statue over here that says to the unknown God, I'm going to tell you who that unknown God is. So he's just now told them what he's going to tell them. Then he moves on and what's called the probatio, which is the proof. We're going to get to these verses a little bit later, but it's verses 24 through 29. We'll cover them in detail here in a minute. And it's where it all revolves around the nature of God and man, because that was important to these Stoics. The nature of God and the nature of man. So Paul says, I'm going to talk to you about that. Then he moves on to what's called the exhortation, or the peroratio. It's where he calls them to repent. That's verses 30 and 31. We're going to see that in a little bit as well. Now the other thing that he does here, now he doesn't only shape his message using this outline or this formula that was important to them as philosophers and orators, but he actually is going to use some of their own language. One of the ways to see that here is the Greeks loved the word ignorance. Knowledge was important to them. And they would toss this word around ignorance like they would candy with a child. And you'll notice that Paul uses that word ignorance twice in this passage, verse 23 and verse 30. He does that deliberately because it was a word that was important to them. He also, a little bit later, will use the phrase the divine to refer to God. Well, he is the divine. It's not an unknown word in the Hebrew scriptures, but it was a way that the Stoics referred to God's. The divine. And so Paul is even going to use that word. So he uses some of their language. Words, I'll call them trigger words, if you will. Now that's a bad word in our culture today. But it was something that would have been important to them. And so he uses the, the model of preaching, if you will, or the model of oration that they used. But he also uses language that's familiar with them. And then another thing he's going to do is he actually quotes some of their own philosophers. Now for some, that's we should never do that. It doesn't mean that Paul agrees But he understands, hey, their own philosophers have referenced some things that I could use that they'll appreciate, and it might give me some credibility. And so he even takes advantage of that. So, the first thing we see is that he takes advantage of certain things within the Greco-Roman oration and culture that will help him to communicate to them what he needs to communicate. Now, before we move on, one thing we have to be very careful with is in spite of his using these tools, I'll call them, Paul makes it really clear elsewhere that he didn't reply or um, didn't rely on those things to make his argument. Does that make sense? Meaning, with the Greek philosophers, these orators, everything they did was all about style. Very little was about substance. It was all about style. It didn't matter what you said, it mattered how you said it. Because that's what impressed people. They didn't care if it was true or not, but man, if you could say it, now you've got their attention. 
And so they were all about show. Put the hand up in the air. That's important. Okay? I think I shared with you before a, a, a movie. I don't remember what the name of it is off the top of my head. But on A Knight's Tale. On where when the jousters would get ready, it was common. Um, back in the Middle Ages when jousters would get up, they would have these, what do they call it? They're not clowns, but whatever they are, they're... They're all a jester, basically. They would each have their own jester, and he would get up and he would introduce the jouster. And they were so over the top in the way that they would describe them. It was entertainment. And people looked as forward to hearing these jesters introduce their jouster as they were watching the jouster. And it could be way over the top the way that they would describe these people, almost superhuman. It was all the way they did it. None of what they said was true. This is just some guy with a big stick on a horse. You know, in 10 seconds he may be stuck through or knocked off his horse, but that's not what mattered. Boy, what you said about him, that's really what matters. And people would applause and applaud and, and rile up the crowd, and that's the whole point. It was all the way these jesters said what they said, even though it wasn't true and nobody cared. It's kind of like, you know, wrestling today. Everybody knows it's fake, you know, but man, when they're over the top, that's the entertainment. It was somewhat the same with these philosophers. And so Paul says, I can do that. And he would take advantage of the style, but Paul wouldn't be over the top like that. In fact, he says, he covers this in pretty good detail in 1 Corinthians Verse, or chapter 1, verse 17, he says that he did not come to them in cleverness of speech, using those little twisty things, you know, to convince people of things, manipulate their thinking by using clever words. And, you know, we see that sometimes with media, the way they do things, right? He says, I didn't rely on cleverness of speech. Chapter 2, verse 1 of 1 Corinthians, he says, I didn't come to you with superiority of speech or wisdom, and that's what he's referring to here. He's not saying I wasn't wise, but he's saying I didn't come to you with this glorified speech and fancy wisdom to make my point to you. He says in verse 4 of chapter 2 of 1 Corinthians, I didn't come to you with persuasive words of wisdom. He doesn't mean he didn't try to persuade them, but he didn't use the manipulation of words in such a way that all the importance was on the words. He also says in chapter 2, verse 13, I didn't come to you with words taught by human wisdom, meaning the skill of using words and all of that that are just taught through human wisdom. His words that he used were spiritual, meaning he relied on the scriptures and what God had said. And so he goes into great detail with the Corinthians saying, when I came to you, I didn't come to you like those Greek orators. I came to you knowing pretty much one thing. He says, I was determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. So Paul basically says, I didn't come to you to convince you with all these big fancy words and the manipulation that all these Greek philosophers use to convince you of their truth. I might have come to you and talked with you in a way that represented what's important to this culture and society using the style, the structure maybe, but it didn't come to you with the manipulation that they did, manipulating words and your emotions and all that to convince you about Christ. Instead, I came to you with the wisdom and the power of God and the Holy Spirit. In other words, Paul relied on the truthfulness of the Scriptures to lead people to Christ, not style of oration and other things. But again, that doesn't mean that he ignored that. I know Christians today that tell us we shouldn't use anything that the world uses. 
I know Christians who think that we shouldn't be using music or we shouldn't be using even TV. I know some who think that Christian radio should be all talk and no music because that's of the world. I know Christians that say we shouldn't be using smoke machines and skinny... Well, we shouldn't. That's a joke. Never mind. Um, But think about that for just a minute. How many big churches or even small churches now have decided to make their services much more like the world with the smoke machines and the skinny jeans and I was watching a, a video by um, a husband and a wife who were associated with Hillsong I believe it was Hillsong Hillsong or Bethel um, and it was a promotional video and it showed him come on camera with his wife and it's all hip and cool you know and he actually bragged about the fact that he was wearing his fedora and his um, he had a leather jacket on and he even mentioned I've got my skinny jeans and she made a comment about it and he's even got his hot wife next to him and he bragged about how important that was to their church in communicating the gospel to their audience I think if we were to paraphrase Paul he might have said I didn't come to you with my skinny jeans and my leather jacket and my tats Sounds like I'm judging these folks and I'm not talking about their motives or what's behind them. I just think that sometimes we place way too much emphasis on style and not enough on substance. And I think a lot of it is because they're not convinced that the gospel itself can change the heart that you have to somehow put lipstick on the pig. And so Paul says, I didn't come to you that way. But again, he didn't avoid taking advantage of something that was important. You know, I I love hymns, but I also love praise and worship music. We do a mix of it here. You know, I think if we ignore the fact that modern music is important to people, we do a disservice to them. I don't think Paul would have avoided modern music. He would have made sure that the words are appropriate and that the actions are appropriate. I know people who say newer translations of the Bible are wrong. Why? Why? We all speak English, and English changes. Paul would have probably taken advantage. I don't think Paul would be a King James-only person. <laughs> you know, I don't think Paul would say, you better know Greek, because I'm going to quote to you from the Greek, or the Hebrew. No, I think Paul would say, you're English? I'd, I'll talk to you in English. You know. So he took advantage of that. That's one of the important things he did, was he recognized his Greek audience. And so he used a style of oration that was important to them, but he didn't place the style over the substance. Let's move on. The second thing Paul did was he recognized their interest in religion and he took advantage of it. He did it by focusing on two things, the nature of God and the nature of man. Look at verses 24 and 25. Notice he says he's going to proclaim to them this God that he doesn't know or that they don't know and he says two things to them. He's going to talk about the nature of God and the nature of man. Verse 24. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is the Lord of heavens and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. So the first thing he does, he focuses on the nature of God there. He says a number of things. I'll just summarize them here. He says, first off, that God is creator of everything. Gee, where do we get that from? Genesis chapter 1. Throughout the Old Testament, we're told that God is creator of all things. In fact, when you get into the New Testament, the book of Colossians talks about Christ having been behind the creation. So Paul summarizes a biblical concept for them. He then goes on, he says, he is Lord of heaven and earth. Where does that come from? It comes from the scriptures. He says he doesn't dwell in man-made temples or in idols. Where does that come from? 
the same thing. We have an Old Testament filled with God's condemnation of idol worship. It says he doesn't need to be served, which means he doesn't need to be cared for like, a, like an idol would. He also goes on and he says, all life originates from him, from God. Again, where does that come from? Right out of Genesis. So Paul summarizes biblical principles right out of the scriptures as he talks with these. But notice, these things are important to the Stoics. They didn't believe that you could know God. They didn't believe that that um, you could understand him. They believed that the gods dwelt in these idols. And so Paul specifically targets their ignorance with biblical principles. And so he goes head on to these things that they were struggling with, their ignorance in these things, but he does it by summarizing the principles from the Old Testament. Doesn't mean he didn't talk about the scriptures because remember, these Stoic philosophers were likely in, well, we're told they were in the marketplace with Paul. And we know Paul's habit was to use the scriptures and rely on the scriptures when talking to people, both at the synagogue and in the marketplace. Which means Paul didn't ignore using the scriptures. He'd already done that with these folks. Now he's summarizing those principles as he talks to them when he's in front of them. And we also have to remember, too, that this is a summary of what he did. We don't know if he quoted directly from the scriptures or not. But what we do know is that he at least summarized biblical principles regarding the nature of God. Look at what he does then next, because he goes on and now talks about the nature of man. Look at verses 26 through 28. And he made from every man, every nation of mankind, to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. And they would, or that they would seek God, if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far off from each one of us, for in him we live and move and exist, and even some of your own poets have said, for we are also his children, being then the children of God, we ought to not think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone or an image formed by the art, or by the art and thought of man. So what does he do here? He now talks about the nature of man. Let me summarize it for you. He says, every nation was made by God on the earth. Every man created by God. He also says that God is intimately involved with mankind, determining where they live, how long they live. Remember, these Stoic philosophers said, those gods don't even know we exist. So once again, Paul is confronting their ignorance They say, God's not involved with mankind. He doesn't even know we exist. And Paul says, God does know. He sets your boundaries. He sets the the time you live. You were all created from Him. He goes on, he says, He created us to seek after Him, to desire Him, so that we might find Him. Yes, God is actively involved. He wants you to grope and to find Him and to know Him. He says He's not distant or disinterested, Because we're his offspring. He says we live and we move and we exist in him. All things that these philosophers said were were not true. These gods don't love you. They don't even know you. And Paul says, but there is a God who does. He says God's nature should not be constrained by idols made by gold or by silver or by stone. They're not made from the art or the mind or the imagination of God. So Paul confronts their ignorance head on. Every one of these principles I just mentioned is a scriptural, biblical principle. It's the heart and soul of the gospel. God created us to know him, 
He created the, the, our environment, our universe, so that we might see Him, that we might reach out to Him, that we might desire to know Him. He is intimately involved with our lives, even when we don't love Him. He is still intimately involved. In fact, Peter tells us that one of the reasons Jesus Christ has not come back yet is because God is being patient, wanting everyone to come to repentance and to know Him. He is active. He is involved. And so Paul does this by summarizing the Old Testament scriptures for these philosophers and confronting their ignorance. So all of the points Paul made are scriptural principles. The third thing that Paul does is he uses words and concepts that were familiar and important to his audience. Ignorance, I mentioned that already, it was a popular term among the Greek philosophers because they despised it and they were always in the pursuit of knowledge. So Paul uses that word because he knows they're going to like that word. When speaking of God's nature, he uses the divine nature because that was a term that was comfortable to them. Again, divine is a biblical word. He doesn't refer to him as Allah. He doesn't refer to him as Isha. He didn't go that far. But he does use words, I think in our culture and society, the world refers to God as God. We should use God. If I use the word Yahweh with somebody at work, they'd go, huh? They're familiar with the word God. I'll use God. He even quotes from two of their own philosophers, their own poets. The first one is from a poet named Erastus. For in him we live and move and exist. All that philosopher did, or all that poet did, was repeat a scriptural principle. Whether he knew it or not, it wasn't his intent, but he happens to have said something that was true. He also quotes from another one, Epimenides, For we are also all his offspring. Well, that's true. The poet, probably not saved, happened to have said something true. So Paul thought, they would appreciate that. It's somebody from their own sources. Now, I'm not saying that we should use other secular sources as our primary tool of sharing the gospel, but if there is, if you know of somebody, I'll give you a good example, somebody at work who has referred to much of what we see happening in our world today as having been predicted by an author from a number of years ago. And so he's shared with me some of the things this guy has said. And some of them are actually biblical. I have no problem saying, hey, yeah, he's right. That seems to gain me some brownie points with this guy because he respects this author. Hey, I can agree with him if he's right, if it's biblical. I wouldn't use that book as my primary tool to share the gospel, but I can use it as a tool to communicate, to talk with him, and that's exactly what Paul does here. And so he uses words and concepts that were important to his audience. He did that with the Jews, remember? And he's doing it here with the Greek philosophers as well. What's our takeaway from this? I think the primary takeaway is how well Paul knew his audience. He was educated. Boy, he understood not just the Hebrews, but he also understood the Greek culture that he was a part of. The fact that he could quote from memory two of their poets meant he must have read them. So he communicated in a way that showed respect he understood their interests and took advantage of it. He used words and concepts that were important to them. I was challenged by this myself just recently. I've shared this with you before, but looking for ways to communicate with people at work, finding out things that they like or things that are important to them. I had an opportunity this last week. I happened to be talking to a young lady out in Kansas. Um, and she, we were chit-chatting. I had about 20 or 30 minutes of working on her PC, and it was all remote. So, you know, instead of just breathing on the phone... You know, we'll bring up topics, and so I'll ask her this or that. And she brought up family. Are you married? I'm like, yes, I'm married. You got two 
two daughters, wife. She's like, yeah, um, great. And I said, are you married? And she's like, well, kind of, yeah. Um, been married for 26 years, but we've been separated since 2017. Oh, but by the way, we live in the same house. That's interesting. She's like, I live up in the upstairs. He lives in the downstairs basement. So I said, well, how's that working out for you? She's like, well, it's been interesting, but I'm getting over it. It was really hard at first. And so I thought, opportunity. So I began to ask her, find ways to communicate with her about that. And it led to an opportunity to share the gospel with her because I started to ask, well, so how are you dealing with that? Are you a religious person? Well, I did go to church when I was a real young kid, but no, I'm not. But I've been studying this woman, and she talks about rocks and crystals and worshiping that stuff. Oh, interesting. And so I said, oh, that's interesting. I said, um, you know, Paul mentions that. I said, do you know who the Apostle Paul is? And he's like, I'm not really all that familiar. I said, well, Apostle Paul, he wrote part of our New Testament, but he mentions that in Romans chapter 1. Um, he talks about how somehow we like to worship the creation rather than the creator. And so what you're talking to me about, you mentioned these crystals and these rocks. I said, have you ever thought about getting to know the one who made those rocks and those crystals? And she went, huh. I got a great chance to share the gospel with her. And she said, you know, there's a church down the street. Maybe I'll go down there. Finding ways to communicate. I knew that she opened this door up and began to tell me about her life with him and the pain and how hard it was and how difficult it was. And so I figured, you know what? I need to talk to her about the gospel from that perspective. Not just about hell, not just about judgment. We'll talk about that in a couple of weeks. But finding a way to communicate to her in a way that she could understand and it was important to her. And so that's what I did. Even to the point where at the end I said, you know, I know we're not supposed to talk about this kind of stuff at work and I have to be very careful. And she goes, no, this is fine. I talked, didn't I? I think we need to do that more. Let me just wrap this up. I know it's getting late here, but let me finish this up with one last thing. When Paul shared the gospel, he wasn't afraid to talk about sin and judgment. That oftentimes gets overlooked in so many churches today. We'll just do this quickly, but verses 30 through 31, he does this at the end of his time. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent, because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof of all men, or to all men, by raising him from the dead. So Paul was not afraid to bring up the topic of judgment and sin. He says, God overlooked the times of ignorance, but he was now declaring to men that it was time to repent. He says he's fixed a day to judge the world in righteousness. He said this judgment would be in relationship to one standing with Christ, and then he says he's even provided proof of that by raising Jesus from the dead. He wasn't afraid of addressing controversial topics. I think in our world today, it's difficult these people here, you notice in verses 32 and following, some of them sneered, but some of them wanted to hear more. Some of them actually joined him. Look at verses 32 and following. Now when they had heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer. Others said, hmm, we should hear more from you about this. And then others basically went with them. Look at verse 33. So Paul went out of their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysus, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damarius, and others with them. What's our takeaway with this? 
I think when we get the opportunity to share the gospel, we shouldn't be afraid to talk about sin and judgment. Now, I'm not suggesting that every time you talk with somebody about Christ, you need to immediately get to sin and judgment. Ask God for guidance and wisdom on that. It's certainly not popular to talk about those things, is it? But you know what? It's important because there's no way to understand God's grace, his mercy, his forgiveness, eternal life without a concept of understanding sin and judgment. And a gospel void of those things is not really the gospel. If all we do is talk about God's love and the benefits of knowing him, that's not really the gospel. And so Paul wasn't afraid. In fact, if you look at the sermons in the book of Acts, both Paul's and Peter's, Stephen's, they generally address the concept of the coming judgment and having to know Christ to avoid that. And so one of the things we need to understand, too, is that it's important that even though those are not popular topics today, there's no way we can make the gospel sweet as sugar by avoiding those controversial things. It's important that we do, and we'll find the same thing Paul did. Some will sneer at us, but some will say, hmm, I'm willing to talk and listen, and others will ultimately say, I believe, as a result. I'm going to go ahead and just wrap it up with that, but... One of the, the biggest things for me on this passage and last week's passage is how important it is to understand the audience that we're talking to when we share the gospel. It can't be a cookie-cutter thing. And we, much like Paul, need to find ways to communicate to those individual audiences in a way that they understand and in a way that's important to them. Which means we have to do an awful lot of listening as well. And so we need to ask questions. Find out what's interesting to them and be able to then communicate in a way that maybe shows how the gospel can impact their lives in relationship to those things. All right? Let's go ahead and pray. Father, thank you so much for this uh, passage today from the Apostle Paul and from last week's passage. Um, Man, I'd look forward someday to meeting him, Father. We learn so much about him um, and what we see. I just, I don't know what it is, but there's a part of me that just can't wait to be able to talk to